0: Great to be here, Larry, and I am a a virgin at the NMC Summer Institute, and so uh, I didn't know what to expect, and so I asked Larry, uh, what should I do for this? And he said, first, be provocative. I thought I can do that. Uh, He said, be relevant. Well, that makes me a little nervous because I suspect that uh, 95% plus of the folks in this audience are primarily focused on higher ed. So um, what I wanna focus on, though, is what I would call the big hairy T- problems of technology in K-12 and show why you might care. Uh, first of all, I want to I talk about two problems. One is the ubiquity and access gaps that are in K-12. And secondly, I want to talk about the even more difficult problem, us, uh, the people, the human capacity problem. Um, but I think in order to make it relevant, I have to give you some sense of how K-12 is a little different than than higher ed and we sometimes have that perception that K-12 is just this little cottage industry, it's the school I went to uh, we all have that experience. In fact K-12 is an enormous enterprise uh, the number of students is, is dwarfs uh, higher ed 55 million compared to 19.7 uh, and in terms of schools Uh, And school districts, uh, it's, uh, you know, the numbers are just uh, very large. Uh, We have quite a set of diversity, all the way from New York City, which has, you know, a million and a half kids, down to the average school system, about 70% of those have less than 2,500 students. So there's quite a bit of range when people say, well, how's technology doing in schools? It's really hard to say. And only about 65% of school districts have one person dedicated to technology leadership. And those are the people that I work with. So, Why should you care? This is a new report, a relatively new report from McKinsey, which says that an improvement of one standard deviation on PISA creates an additional 2% of economic growth. This ought to get all of our attention. It ought to be the attention of our policymakers because if we can't fix, we can't just have a few kids going on to higher ed. We have to prepare all kids for being college and career ready. Um, as Larry said, we've partnered for the last three years very proudly uh, with NMC, taking that great report, the Horizon Report that's been around for a decade and comes out annually about the important trends. Um, as I said, my audience that I worked with are the people in charge of technology. But K-12 really doesn't have an R&D function in most school systems. There's nobody like the people in this room. So we really rely on you to help prepare us to know what to focus on in terms of emerging technologies. And so what the Horizon K-12 report does for us is rather than saying, gee, today I'm going to focus on podcasting, tomorrow on wikis, the next day on tablets, It's what's the most important things that are happening that can make a difference in learning. So that's very important. So what exactly has been the impact of technology in education? and um, I put up a picture of Robin based on the five minutes uh, that we heard yesterday uh, because I think that in fact has been the metaphor for how K-12 thinks about technology it's based on a hero mentality it's about a really innovative teacher a model school but the problem is We have all. You could go to any superintendent in the United States or Canada and say, "Find me, show me where it's really technology is making a difference." And they could roll out, you know, some hero teacher. The problem is, it hasn't become a system. It hasn't become an ecosystem of innovation. We have these little islands of innovation, but not an ecosystem. Um, It's one-offs. And a part of that is an investment problem. Uh, this is a little old data, but I suspect it's still true. Uh, the US Department of Commerce ranked 55 industry sectors by IT intensiveness. Education was dead last, and that included higher ed. Um, that means that things like coal mining are higher IT wow. intensive than K-12. So why hasn't technology transformed learning? We've certainly heard many promises from people in this room and the rooms that I spend time in. Well, first of all, we lack ubiquity. Only 13% of K-12 classrooms have a device for every kid. And I said, how many of you in the room have a device with you? How many of you have two devices? How many of you have three devices that are internet enabled? That is not the case for the average K-12 student. They're, in fact, it's about a device for every four to five kids. That You can imagine if your device, if you had four other people crowded around you, you'd use it in totally different ways. You wouldn't use it as much, you'd use it in completely uh, different ways. So that's one problem. It's mostly been layered on top of, providing some productivity improvement, doing things slightly better, but not fundamentally changing. And that's because it really takes time for technology to you know all the research about how technology changes it takes us a while to absorb it you know when the automobile was first uh, invented it was called a horseless carriage it was called a horseless carriage because it looked pretty much like it It had thin wheels it had a carriage it was only after we realized that it needed to have bigger wheels it needed a stronger carriage that we started calling it an automobile well that's kind of how in k-12 we're thinking about technology the concerns about technology are nothing new. In fact, um, I found these kind of interesting quotes. In 1700, uh, here's from the Teachers' Conference saying, Te- Students today can't prepare bark to calculate their problems. They depend upon their slates, which are more expensive. What will they do when their slate is dropped and it breaks? They'll be unable to write. <laughs> or in 1800, at the Principals' Association, they said, Students depend too much on paper. They don't know how to write on slate without chalk dust all over themselves. They can't clean a slate properly. What will they do when they run out of paper? (laughs) Or in 1900, from the Teachers Association, uh, students depend too much on ink. Uh, They don't know how to use a penknife to sharpen a pencil. Pen and ink will never replace the pencil. Or in 1950, ballpoint pens will be the ruin of education in our country. Students will use these devices and then throw them away. The American virtues of thrift and frugality are being discarded. (laughs) Business and banks will never allow these expensive luxuries. Frankly, in K-12, we've been really stuck in the wrong debate we keep arguing should we invest in technology and what we really need to have is a new question and that is what should learning look like that prepares students for today and tomorrow making them college career and life ready if we start with that question technology will be totally embedded with everything we do and we'll stop having the silly question of whether or not we can afford it I talked about the big hairy problem of ubiquity and access. So, as I said, only 13 percent of school districts have a ubiquitous... uh, there are some exceptions. Uh, One of them is Mooresville in North Carolina. Uh, They've been doing it for about three or four years. It isn't just about the technology. They've rethought their educational system. But their graduation rate is up, their proficiency is up, their attendance is up. And in fact, they're not a wealthy district. They're a hundredth out of 115 districts. They've simply reallocated their resources. But what I hear from most superintendents is we can't afford to provide ubiquitous access. Even wealthy districts um, can't. And yet, students have devices and we're banning them. 85% of students can't use their cell phone in a classroom. They're prohibited by school policies. And um, the new data from Project Tomorrow indicates that half of high school kids have a smartphone. Uh, 26% of middle school and 21% of of, uh, high school have a tablet. But those are banned to the backpack or the locker because school policies prohibit them from bringing them. Uh, There are some districts that are starting to change that. Uh, Forsyth County, outside of uh, Atlanta, uh, they felt they couldn't afford it. They're a wealthy district, but they said, you know, maybe we sh- we ought to let kids start bringing them. And they've had it started with a volunteer program in high school. It's moved down, and uh, they there are many concerns about this. Uh, administrators are concerned. Uh, there are many reasons for doing it. Uh, engagement. It extends beyond the school. It personalizes learning. It allows access. To digital content, it sounds really easy, but it's not. Uh, there, fact, of course, it means that teachers have to refocus, uh, thinking about how they do classroom management. They're concerned about distraction. There's concerns about cheating, and if you're going to ask the same old question of what's the capital of Massachusetts, it is an advantage if you have internet access. But that may be the wrong question. And finally, it, it of course, uh, teachers, administrators are concerned that they don't have the skills. But all those are the fears of adults. Um, There are big challenges. You have to do it in an equitable way. Not every student has a device. You have to make sure that you do it in safety and liability and you have to provide bandwidth. But um, if done right, this is a big opportunity for K-12 to solve that problem. We also have a a ubiquity problem around uh, access to broadband. And it it goes to the home. We can't just have a learning environment uh, at school. We have to make sure that kids can do their work at home. So uh, and you can see that it differentiates by family income. Some other countries are moving ahead. Uh, We were just in Uruguay. Uh, They've given out a device to every kid grade one to nine. They also have put hotspots everywhere in the country. Anywhere you are, you're within six blocks of having internet access. That sort of focus on social inclusion and equity is a conversation I don't think we're having yet in the United States. Started out as a technology effort, but it's driving educational reform. There are some private sector efforts. The cable industry, this year, is offering for families that have kids that are have school lunch eligible, uh, they can purchase for 9.95 broadband at home, and they can get low-cost computers and digital. But but it's a consumer-driven, not a public policy, and this solves part of the puzzle but it isn't reaching the the very poorest of families that couldn't afford ten dollars a month. The bigger problem though is uh, people. It's us. And that means that superintendents who lead our schools need to really understand why they should care about technology. So we've been working with superintendents to try to help them define what their needs are. It also means that people like the people in this room who are in K-12 who are in charge of technology need to really understand that they have new skills that they need and that it's less and less about the technology thinking of it as a silo and more about enabling the enterprise and working with curriculum, working with um, uh, the whole, whole enterprise of education so that they we accomplish the things that they need. We also need new learning models. We have to Enable, we have to start viewing the, the student as the core recipient, the customer of education. If the learning system doesn't work for them it doesn't work, it isn't, the system isn't working. We need to use formative data feeding back to that, the learner so that they know where they are. That sort of information in, in outside of education is key to informing consumers about what, every other aspect of life. And that's what we need to do in education. And some places are starting to do that. There's a new school supported by the MacArthur Foundation, which is a game-based school in New York City. Um, It allows kids to become designers. We also see the MacArthur Foundation supporting things are working with libraries and cultural institutions. This particular uh, project is in Chicago with the public library, a place that not many urban poor kids go to in a typical situation, but they've created a digital media center after school, and it's the hottest place to go because kids get to create digital media. So there are new models. It also requires that we start reallocating because, frankly, Santa Claus isn't coming down the chimney. Nobody in K-12 is getting more money. If anything, they're going to have less money. So how do you spend money differently in the way in which you are? Which means spending it less on textbooks, more on digital content, more on the infrastructure, broadband, probably less on the devices. Leveraging what we have. It also means new policies. It means we can't have policies that prohibit student-owned devices. We have to leverage what, what they arrive with. And it means new partnerships and that's where I want to end is for this audience of folks in higher ed that are mostly focused on thinking about innovative uses of technology. We can't just focus on the shiny baubles and we we have to focus your research and design efforts around the really big hairy problems of K-12. I would like to put a challenge out to you that next year when you come here you go to your local school district and invite your local school district chief information officer, chief technology officer to come along and in fact I've modeled this behavior and I see Jean Tower out there she's my chairman of the board, she's from Northboro, Southborough, Massachusetts she's the kind of person that you need to be working with defining what the problems, what, if you want to work on K-12 Are you really solving the problems that the system needs fixed, not just what you individually want to work on? And I encourage you to read Tom Friedman's new book, That Used to Be Us. We need to get back to that ability to see the big opportunities and work together. So, be not afraid. And I close with uh, John Dewey's quote, which said, if we teach today Today's students, as we did yesterday's, we're robbing them of tomorrow. Thanks.